I am Ken Keith. I'm a judge of the International Court of Justice. I was early um, a judge in, earlier a judge in New Zealand, uh, and I'll mention one or two New Zealand cases in the course of this. Uh, and before that, early in my working life, I was a member of the Office of Legal Affairs, the Codification Division, UN Secretariat in New York. So it's a great joy for me to be able to contribute again uh, to this uh, splendid series. Now my topic is the International Court of Justice and Criminal Justice. You may wonder why I'm addressing this. There are already a number of uh, splendid contributions by real experts on international criminal law in this uh, series. Um, I'm not an expert in that area. Um, I'm a generalist. Some would say I'm not even a generalist international lawyer. I'm a generalist lawyer of some kind or other. But I think you will see that um, I do have something to say and the International Court of Justice has something to say. And that is so notwithstanding the fact that, uh, to take a first point, Article 34 of the Statute of the Court says only states may be parties before the court. Second, it is commonly said on the basis of the International Law Commission's work on state responsibility that states cannot commit international crimes. Uh, third, is not criminal justice anyway essentially a matter for national law, for national courts, for national administrations? And to the extent that it is um, a matter of international concern or international administration, what about all the international courts and tribunals uh, that have been set up within the last two decades? I think today there may well be 30 or 40 international uh, criminal judges and tribunal members uh, in the city of The Hague. Well, let me briefly address those four matters. First of all, while Article 34 does say that only states may appear before us, as will become clear, they quite often bring to us cases about criminal law, about criminal jurisdiction and the like. Second, the, um, the political organs and other organs of the United Nations system can ask us questions, can ask us for advice by way of a request for an advisory opinion. And those requests might relate to criminal law matters. Next, uh, while it is the case that um, uh, international um, law, uh, that national law primarily governs criminal justice matters, that's not completely the case, and it never has been. There has been a law relating to piracy and international law on that, law relating to war crimes for many centuries. In addition, there is the law about slave trading, about slavery, about human trafficking, about terrorism, about a range of international crimes, attacks on aircraft, attacks on shipping, and, and so on and so on, crimes of corruption, money laundering, and, and of the kind where the international community, international law, has laid down substantive requirements. In addition, uh, international law regulates criminal procedure, the rights of suspects, the rights of people accused before courts. International law governs that in recognition of the very important proposition that the history of freedom is very largely the history of procedural protections. And next, while it is the case that uh, international courts and tribunals are busy, um, cases nevertheless keep coming to us, as I will now try to show you. 
I, I consider four different areas. I'll have to deal with them fairly summarily. You can read the basic resources which will be referred to on the website as well. Uh, and while I'm doing that, I will also make reference to relevant national practice in a very brief way to make the point that there is a lot of overlap, there is a lot of common ground between the way in which international law operates and the way in which national law operates. Now my four topics are first of all a very basic principle of individual criminal responsibility, the principle as it's now called of legality. I'll explain that in a moment. Second, returning to the point about um, states not committing crimes, as, as it is often said, I will consider the dual responsibility of states and individuals arising out of the same set of facts, arising out of the same situations. Thirdly, I will look at questions of jurisdiction and immunity. And finally, I will discuss, as my fourth topic, the role that the court might play in dealing with uh, uh, the actions of national uh, criminal justice administrations. How far can the court go in directing them and uh, requiring certain actions of them? Well, first then, the principle of legality, as I've called it. That's an expression which I think goes back just to the mid-40s. Maybe it goes back earlier, but my researchers don't disclose that. Ten years earlier, in 1935, the League of Nations, the Council of the League of Nations, asked the Permanent Court of International Justice, the predecessor to this court, for an opinion relating to decrees which had just been adopted in Danzig. Danzig at that point, Gdansk these days, was under League of Nations uh, guarantee of one kind or another. The decree that had just been enacted, the decree that was referred to the court, had been enacted by a legislature which had been, uh, which was dominated by nationalist socialists. Um, and the decree was a direct copy of a decree that had been passed in Germany by the Nazi authorities there, and it changed in a very basic way the criminal law. The criminal law had provided until 1935 in both places that you could be convicted of an offence only if that crime was on the books at the time of the acts in question. Uh, the principle, as the court put it, putting it in Latin, I'll translate, uh, no crime <coughs> without a law, no penalty without a law. That's what the law had said. The new law said that you could be punished if you did something that was contrary to sound popular feeling. You could be punished if you did something contrary to the fundamental elements of the criminal law and contrary to sound popular opinion. The Permanent Court of International Justice said that was in breach of the Constitution. Now the Constitution didn't have anything in it about non-retroactivity, didn't have anything in it requiring a specific, specific definition in the criminal law, nothing of that specific kind, but the court said it was a Rechstaat, it was a government governed by the rule of law, a rule of law state. And on that basis the court held that the uh, decree was contrary to the basics of the Constitution. Now that um, principle has been picked up <coughs> and made more explicit in more recent years in the K 
Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for instance, and the various regional conventions, they now provide, for instance, that criminal liability cannot be retrospective, criminal penalties cannot be retrospective, and they require, if rights guaranteed by those instruments are to be uh, affected in some way, the limits have to be reasonable restrictions imposed by law and demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Language of that kind, language that you find as well in uh, domestic uh, constitutional systems. So now the task of the judge is somewhat more straightforward. But that issue continues to arise. There was a great fuss in the United Kingdom and England in the mid-1950s when legislation, sorry, when the courts, when the House of Lords, the final court in the land, held that they could create, in effect, an offence of breach of morals. Uh, some actions that were outrageous to the public conscience or something of that kind, the court said, could be forbidden. What was an issue was a, a document charmingly called the Ladies' Directory. You can go and look up the case and uh, find out what it was all about. Now, there was an immediate negative reaction to that claim by the courts to create new criminal law and to create it retrospectively. And there had been references in the writing in, in the United Kingdom, scholarly writing, to how outrageous the German law was. Well, here was the House of Lords, the final court in the United Kingdom, creating such a law um, by way of judicial decree, not even through the legislature. So the, <clears throat> the House of Lords very soon thereafter reversed that decision, uh, reversed that ruling. And, and you'll find to this present day courts doing the same sort of thing in much more modest ways. If I can make one New Zealand reference, there was a case involving a, a, a young man who had committed dreadful offences, really terribly serious offences. By the time he came to be convicted, the sentencing law had been changed. It was a bit vague, a bit murky, about whether it could apply to earlier offences. The lower court said that uh, it could apply to um, earlier offences, even although the sentence wasn't available in respect of this young man who had got older in the meantime. The sentence wasn't available in his case at the time he committed the offence. The Supreme Court said no, that's wrong, that's contrary to principle. The Supreme Court um, required the lesser offence, the lesser sentence, to be imposed. And in coming to that conclusion, to pick up on the point of the interaction between different legal systems, the court had regard to an old decision in, in the United Kingdom, a Privy Council decision on appeal from Jamaica, and also to a decision of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, which the New Zealand court thought was contrary to principle. Uh, the New Zealand court thought um, that the European court had erred, not quite as badly as the Danzig uh, legislature had all those years ago, but that had heard, had heard in principle required that this young man be sentenced under the law that was, that was on the books at the time that he committed the offence, the law that would have been applicable to him had he been sentenced immediately. So that's one area of law, the principle of legality. Now coming second to a matter which I touched on earlier, the um, business of states possibly committing crimes, the point that I want to make here without getting into that issue is that exactly the same situation can give rise to individual criminal responsibility, maybe internationally, but also to state responsibility. 
That issue arose here in a, in a case decided in 2007 by the International Court of Justice, if I can come on from 1935 to more recent times. Uh, and, and in 2007 the court decided, in, in a case brought by Bosnia against Serbia, that it was possible for Serbia to be held uh, responsible, no adverb, no civilly or criminally, but that it was possible for uh, Serbia to be held responsible for the acts of genocide at Srebrenica, in respect of which there had been criminal convictions. Uh, in the Yugoslav Tribunal, in the uh, International Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. Um, so there, there was dual um, responsibility, a duality of responsibility. And the court, in coming to that conclusion, referred to what was said by the Nuremberg Tribunal back in 1946, when it was rejecting an argument that because states were responsible, therefore individuals couldn't be. No, said the court, individuals could be. It referred as well to the proposition in the statute of the International Criminal Court, which uh, made it clear that uh, uh, this was without prejudice, this liability of individuals was without prejudice to the liability of states, the responsibility of states. And in terms of the most recent reference it made, it referred to the articles on state responsibility prepared by the International Law Commission. All three of those, and as much other authority, made the point that states might be responsible and individuals might also be responsible, the individuals possibly criminally. And this is something that is familiar in national law, where of course uh, the employing agency, which might be the state and the individual, might be liable criminally or civilly, depending on the legal system, criminally or civilly, or both indeed, depending on the legal system in question in respect of the, exactly the same acts arising out of the same situation. So dual responsibility then in terms of a second point that the court has addressed. Now thirdly I come to jurisdiction and I go back to my earliest case. In 1927 the Permanent Court of International Justice um, by a very narrow vote um, uh, dealt with a maritime matter, dealt with a question whether Turkish courts could have jurisdiction over an offence involving a collision between a French vessel and a Turkish vessel on the high seas. The Turkish authorities wanted to prosecute the captain, the French officer of the watch, on board the French vessel. The French government said the French courts, the French authorities, had exclusive jurisdiction. They were the flag state. The flag state had exclusive jurisdiction, said France. No, said the court. Uh, Turkey could exercise jurisdiction. Now this case is most well known for a sentence or two about some fundamental features of international law about the proposition that um, restrictions on the independence of states are not to be presumed. Uh, a rather cautious, um, some would say over-positivist view of international law. Now I don't want to get into those arguments today. All I wanted to do was to note that that decision, that ruling, was overturned by treaty action, by treaty provisions that were carried forward into the 1958 and 1982 conventions on the law of the sea. Uh, and I make that point as part of the your need to consider 
the whole of the legal process. You must not think um, that judges are the be-all and end-all, that courts are the alpha and the omega. That is not the case, and I think I can say that now that I've been a judge for quite a long time in a number of different places. So there you have the international legislature, if you like, overruling the view of the courts. Now, when law of the sea matters now come before the courts, uh, before national courts as well as international ones, it's possible to draw on that uh, great treaty-making work, particularly the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Back in 1927, what could the court refer to? Well, it was referred to decisions from seven different jurisdictions. That, that was a primary source. It also looked at scholarly work. Um, now, as I say, courts can go to the convention, uh, to the great treaty texts. If I could take you back further to the earliest case I think I'm going to mention, a decision in 1877 of the New Zealand Court of Appeal. The New Zealand Court of Appeal uh, decided that the flag state, in respect of an alleged murder on the high seas, had exclusive jurisdiction. That is to say, uh, they decided the way that France argued um, all those years later, what, 50 years later, uh, in, in the um, Permanent Court of International Justice. I don't think the Permanent Court had the advantage of the New Zealand decision. But what did the New Zealand judges depend on? They had to depend on the textbooks, on what would be referred a little later in Article 38 of the Statute of the Permanent Court as the, uh, the most distinguished, uh, the most well-known uh, publicists, the most well-known jurists, the, the writers, the textbook writers. That's where the uh, New Zealand Court went. Uh, in um, interpreting some rather general legislation conferring criminal jurisdiction on the courts of New Zealand. So, in, in, the, in, the, in the distant past, courts had to go to textbooks and so on, and to a little bit of state practice. Later, it was possible for them to go to judicial decisions. In those areas where the uh, codification effort, the diplomatic effort, has been successful, they can go to the treaty texts or to the draft articles, to the articles prepared by the International Law Commission. You'll find an example, it's not directly in my topic today, but you'll find an example from early 2012 in the decision of the International Court in the state immunity case between uh, Germany and Italy of reference to a great number of national court decisions because there, there was no governing treaty text neither the um, United Nations Convention on State Immunity nor the European Convention on State Immunity was uh, directly applicable, although they were part of the materials on which the court drew in that case. Now, I should, <coughs> in the context of jurisdiction, also mention immunities. There have been three cases um, before the court uh, just recently relating to immunities in the last 10 years relating to immunities from criminal jurisdiction, that is, of state officials. One of them was withdrawn. In another case, it wasn't necessary for the court to get to the point. Uh, in the third case, however, the case brought by um, the Congo, the DRC, against Belgium, the court held that um, Belgium had acted unlawfully in uh, considering and issuing a an arrest warrant for the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Democratic Republic of the Congo for war crimes. That was a breach of the 
personal immunity of a serving foreign minister. So the, and the court decided, uh, as I say, against Belgium in that case. Now you can read the detail of those cases on the court's website. I don't, um, don't go into them at the moment. And I think that brings me to my fourth topic, if I've counted correctly. That is the role that the court plays in looking at uh, the decisions on criminal justice matters of national authorities, of national courts. This has arisen a number of times in respect of breaches by United States authorities of their obligations under the Consular Convention, the convention that requires them when an alien is arrested, when a foreigner is arrested, to give them notice of their, their right to go to their consul, their right to seek consular assistance and to have that assistance if uh, that's what is decided by the person who's been arrested. There have also been, um, there's also, there have also been cases between Djibouti and France where Djibouti claimed that France uh, was obliged under a bilateral agreement between them to hand over a criminal investigation file, a criminal investigation relating to the death in Djibouti of a French um, magistrate who had been seconded there. And another case uh, before the court concerns a claim by Belgium against Senegal uh, relating to the actions that Senegal has been taking or hasn't taken relating to um, Hissen Habre, the former uh, president of Chad who fled to uh, Senegal and has been resident there for some time. There are serious charges of torture and other major crimes made against um, Mr. Habre and uh, the Belgian authorities sought uh, the court, uh, sought an order from the court relating to those matters. Well, in those areas, um, the court uh, has exercised a certain caution. Um, let me just make two points about those cases. You can read the detail again in the court's records. In, in the cases relating to the Consular Convention, the court made it absolutely clear that it was not going to operate as a court of criminal appeal. It rejected, for instance, a proposal that it make an order setting aside the convictions and sentences of those who had not been given their appropriate rights under the Consular Convention. Uh, it said that wasn't its job. What it did say was that the United States was obliged by means of its own choosing to establish an effective means for reconsideration and examination of the convictions and sentences in question. In other words, it was left to the United States authorities to work that out. There you see a recognition of the court, um, first of all, thinking just how far can we go in getting into the detail of um, uh, national law, national administration in these areas which are essentially in many ways uh, for national authorities and which vary greatly from one country to another. And second, secondly, a recognition that in the case of the respondent state there, there were the real complications of a federal system and just how a federal system could come to grips with that uh, kind of situation. A second point I wanted to make uh, arising from these cases, it's a point of more general application, um, 
relates to the finding that the court made in the Djibouti case that France, in refusing to hand over the um, records, refusing to hand over the investigation file, had failed to give reasons uh, to the Djibouti authorities for that action. There was an obligation, said the court, for the um, French authorities to give reasons for their actions and they had not done that. Now, the court then went on in a very interesting passage, I think, which um, finds resonances in national law to give reasons for the requirement to give reasons. And they're familiar, I think, to many people who operate in many different areas of law, particularly in public law relating to public authorities of one kind or another. The first reason for requiring reasons is the discipline it places on the writer. I know that well now from having been a judge for a long time. When you sit down with a blank piece of paper and think, how am I going to write this um, opinion? How am I going to write this judgment? That's a real discipline. Uh, a second reason for requiring reasons is that it tells the parties, tells those who are affected, what the decider thought of the contentions that they have made. Or it may sadly sometimes indicate that those contentions have not actually been considered. And third, that um, set of reasons or gaps in the reasons might lead to the affected parties asking for reconsideration or seeking review or seeking appeal or something of that kind if those courses are available. And finally, in some situations, and this is very familiar to lawyers, in some situations the reasons will help or may help the build-up of precedent, may help the build-up of authority in that particular area, in that particular area of law or administration. Now, I've, I've run through um, those four areas. I could have discussed others. I mean, one, one very large issue that arises, it seems increasingly, uh, across um, cases of the kind I've been mentioning, are issues of proof, issues of evidence on whom is the burden, and so on. How, how are facts to be established? That's one complex area, and you'll find that discussed, for instance, in the Corfu Channel case, the first case decided by this court, and you'll find it more recently in the genocide case that I mentioned, the 2007 case between Bosnia and Serbia. Also, an interesting array of questions arise in most of these uh, cases about how to interpret the treaties in question. How is the Genocide Convention to be interpreted in that case uh, that I have just mentioned again? Um, and there you'll find the court going to Articles 31 and 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties as a completely accepted statement of customary international law. As so often is the case, the Vienna Convention is not in its own terms applicable. There you're concerned with the 1948 Convention you're concerned with states that may or may not be party to the uh, Law of Treaties Convention, although, although those two were. But nevertheless, that convention is seen in many areas as being a, a, a widely accepted statement of customary international law. Well, you see in all of these cases, I think, uh, the International Court of Justice as a general court, a court of general jurisdiction, not a court concerned with a particular area, but concerned with the whole wide range of international law, the only court in existence that has that broad function. You see it bringing to 
bringing to bear on, specific, on a specific area of law, on the criminal justice area or various facets of it, its um, general skills by reference to the particular facts. And it does that by drawing, of course, on the wisdom of the ages, on drawing on the kind of sources I've mentioned, by drawing on the pleadings of the parties, on the arguments of counsel, and by drawing with assistance from within the registry and so on of the court, and by drawing on the um, experience and background of the 15 or sometimes more of us uh, who come from all corners of the world and come from a great range of different legal systems. Thank you.